Today's uh, scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of, the, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love, your amazing grace. We just sang about your amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Father, we pray that we would always remember your amazing grace that we would always be grateful for your love, your mercy. And Father, we pray today that as we delve into this passage, as we think about what you have to say to us, we pray that you would encourage us through your word, that you would convict us through your word, that you would move in our hearts, and that we could truly respond with faith and with praise, with worship, with thanksgiving unto you. We thank you, and in Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So today we're in uh, Genesis chapter 3, and I wanted to really talk about the topic of sin, and I guess more specifically, you know, to think about what sin is, uh, how it affects us, how it changes us, and really how do, we, how do we overcome it? Now, I recognize sin is not always the most popular topic for people. I've heard many people say to me over the years, I, I don't want to talk about sin, I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about mercy. I want to talk about forgiveness, love. But the problem with that statement is, if you don't know sin, you don't know grace. If we don't understand the power of sin and, and what sin does, then what does mercy mean? What does grace mean? What does even forgiveness mean? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound and then what did it say? That saved a wretch like me. Because of sin, I am a wretch. Because of sin, I am lost. Because of sin, I am blind. And so I have to understand what sin is. I have to understand what it does to me, what it does to God. And I have to understand, obviously, as a child of God, how do I overcome that sin so I could worship, so I could praise so I could live faithfully, fruitfully for my God. And so before we really get into this passage, I just want to define sin quickly. I want to actually use the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the question is, what is sin? It answers by saying, sin is any want of, sin is any want of conformity onto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. And really, what, what is that saying? Sin is... Obviously, when we break God's law, when we disobey God, when we 
rebel against God. It is a personal thing. Where sin is personal, it is against God. It's not an abstract thing. It is personal. It is important. And obviously, because of sin, there's consequences of sin. There's loss of communion. There's obviously his displeasure, his curse. There's, there's wrath. There's condemnation. But as we look at this passage today, I want to look a little bit at, little bit at what sin is and also think about how do we overcome sin so we could live a life truly of praise, thanksgiving, worship unto him. Now, this passage, there's a lot in Genesis 3. Uh, I think you could go on and on and on. So I realize this, you, know, you can't talk about everything in the passage in depth, but I just wanted to just, I guess, kind of take a snapshot of it. And there's three points I want to bring up today. First, the temptation of sin. Oh, temptation to sin, I want to say. Second, the distortion of sin. And lastly, the guilt and shame that comes from sin. Right? So the temptation to sin, the distortion of sin, and the guilt, the shame that comes from sin. Now, when you look at this passage, it starts in verse 1 by saying, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, until Genesis 3, we don't even hear about the serpent. We don't know anything about the serpent. But as we read the passage, we study Scripture, we obviously know that the serpent is going to be an agent of Satan, of the deceiver. And the serpent says to the woman in verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, think about that. The serpent doesn't come with the declaration, God is wrong. He doesn't come with the declaration, you need to sin. He comes with it really with an insinuation, right? It comes subtly, and he's kind of opening that door. He wants to open the door to sin, and he just kind of does it with these words. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we all know that the Lord God did not say that. Right? God said you could eat of any tree in the garden, obviously, except one. There was one tree he did forbid, but he, he twists it. And so he's starting this conversation, trying to go down the wrong path. Eve, unfortunately, takes the bait. And in verse 2, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, which is true. But God said, verse 3, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which is also true. But then she says something that's not true. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God did not say that. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see nothing about not touching it. And she's already twisting the word of God. And one of the ways that very clear that we are tempted to sin is through doubt. It is through doubt. I am tempted to sin when I doubt the goodness of God, the love of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, and doubt is a powerful thing. And what is Satan doing? He is opening the door, leading this woman, Eve, to doubt the goodness of God. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything, and he says, it is good, everything is good. Adam and Eve are worshiping, they're in perfect fellowship with God, with each other, everything is great. And here in Genesis 3, 
door to sin is creaking open, and we start with doubt. Satan is getting Eve, getting Adam to doubt God's character, to doubt his words, his truth, to doubt who he is. And so we see that started to happen. And then Satan takes a verse 4, he straight up says, you will not surely die. He makes a declaration. He's calling God a liar. Because God said you will die. Now he's saying God is a liar. And he keeps going. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he starts slowly, just kind of creaking that door open. He's kind of confusing Eve. And he just comes in with the hammer. And what is he doing this whole time? He's, he's, he's getting her to mistrust God's words, mistrust his goodness, mistrust his character, his love, that he is for the good of Adam and Eve. And obviously we're going to see in the passage this doubt this temptation that comes through the doubt, it succeeds. Adam and Eve do sin. They do eat of the forbidden fruit. But let's think about that for a second. Let's think about me. Let's think about you. Do I doubt? I do. Do you doubt? And I am willing to say probably most, if not all of us, have times of doubt. Is God really good? I just sang at church today, amazing grace. How sweet the sound to save the wretch like me. Maybe that moved my heart and maybe I shed a tear. Maybe that really just broke me. Maybe I think about the first day I was saved and how good God seemed to be. But then life happens. I don't get into the school of my choice. God, don't you know how much I wanted that? Maybe I don't marry the person I thought I was supposed to marry. God, why would you do that to me? Maybe I don't get the job that I want, or I lose the job that I so cherish and need. God, why don't you care about me? Maybe somebody I love is sick, and I feel like they've done nothing wrong. Why are they sick? Maybe somebody I love has died. Why, Lord? And I doubt. You doubt. We doubt. And, and through those doubts, often there is a temptation to sin against God, to rebel against him, to not trust in him, to not worship him, to walk away from him. And so we see doubt leading towards temptation to sin. But the second thing we see in this passage is desire. We see verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took his fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there's the doubt. So already now she's doubting who God is, and then she buys the lie. She is deceived by Satan. And so what happens? She sees the fruit. It's good. It looks good. I want to eat it. And then she says, I want to be wise. She bought the lie. If I eat that, I'm going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what does she do? She says, I'm going to eat this thing. And then she tells her husband, you eat it with me. Honestly, every time I read this passage, it really frustrates me. Because I'm like, where was Adam the whole time? If you look at the way the passage is written, it seems like Adam was there the whole time. 
Maybe he should have stepped in and said, Eve, don't listen to that serpent. But he just passively is there, and then he just rebels with her. He's supposed to lead this relationship. He does no leading. He just follows into sin. But her desires that came from doubt leads her to sin. And obviously, Satan had a role in that, a huge role in the deception, in the misleading. But ultimately, Adam and Eve choose to sin. And again, we look at our lives. I have desires. You have desires. And desire is not a bad thing. Desire, God created us, created us to have desire. But what happens so often? The desires go out of place. Place. Desires are not, the way it's supposed to happen, the way we were created is that God comes first. I worship you, Lord. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's all about you. And then I desire everything beneath that. But what happens? My desires become ultimate. What looks good to me, what I desire, the knowledge that I want to become wise, to taste that thing that I think tastes so good, what happens? It becomes bigger. And honestly, what happens then is I'm pretty much saying, God, I don't want you to be God of my life. I want to be God of my life. I am my Lord. I am my Savior. And that's what happens. And so as we doubt who God is, as we doubt his plan for my life, his goodness, and as my desires become inordinate and it gets bigger and bigger, I'm tempted and I sin. Now, one thing I do want to say here is one of the beauties, though, in the Bible is that there's hope for you and for me. Because the thing I know, the thing I hope you know is that ultimately God wins. You know, even in this passage in verse 15, there's, there's a verse that people call, they call it the proto-gospel, right? The first time that we see the gospel in the Bible. And pretty much God says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between you, your offspring, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And scholars will say this is the first time we see what's going to happen on the cross where Christ will go to the cross. He will suffer. He will die. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, he will crush Satan's head. And we know he wins. And we know he will defeat sin, evil, death, Satan. And so the hope that is in Christ for me, for you, for all of us who are Christians, who are children of God, is that no matter what the temptation is, no matter what doubts I may have at that moment, what desires seem so strong that I can't overcome it, I know and you know that if you trust in Christ, I can overcome any and every sin with his power. And that's a beautiful thing. Because when I face temptation and when I have doubts that I can't erase, when I have desires that seem so powerful, and when I question the Lord, I also realize that when I cling on to Jesus, I can overcome these things, which then means temptation is not necessarily a bad thing. It can actually be a good thing 
because it allows me to cling on to the Lord and it allows me to overcome that temptation and to worship God in the midst of the temptation, of the doubt, of the desires. Sorry. One example that I think, you know, I think of in terms of temptation is, I know we have a lot of people went to college recently, and one thing I always hear for people when they go to college is the importance of their roommate. Right? I remember my freshman year and just being nervous because I didn't know either roommate. And what happens, sometimes you get an amazing roommate, praise the Lord, and sometimes you get the worst roommate. And what happens, it's really hard to love this brother, this sister. Why? Because they're annoying. They're messy. They snore, right? They're inconsiderate. They're not kind. They're selfish. They take all your food and don't ask. They bring people to your room that they shouldn't bring into your room, right? Maybe they're smoking in your room and your whole room smells even though they shouldn't do that. And so what happens? We get upset. We get angry. We want a new roommate. But one thing is this. I've come to realize in my life at least when God puts people in my life that are unlovable, that are difficult, it is an opportunity for me to grow in patience, love, grace, to become Christ-like. And so maybe when I have those unlovable people in my life that are so difficult, instead of just complaining and saying, God, why? Get them out of my life. I can say, Lord, thank you for this opportunity that you have given me to love someone who does not deserve to be loved because I am someone who does not deserve to be loved. And yet, you have loved me, and Christ has given his life in order to love me. And so I do want to encourage us, whatever the temptation might be coming, that any temptation, just like we see Christ overcoming temptation in Matthew 4, in Christ, we can overcome any temptation, develop godliness even during those times. So temptation to sin, but secondly, I want to think about distortion of sin. Now, one thing I see in this passage is Satan's he's a genius, obviously. What does he do? Adam and Eve, it seems like they're happy. And God has blessed them with so much. But what does Satan do? He makes them look at the one thing they can't have. Because God said, you can eat of any fruit. Look at all this abundant blessing. Look at the Garden of Eden. It is paradise. I wish I could have seen the Garden of Eden. Right? And I'm, I'm excited to be with the Lord one day. When Christ returns and see how beautiful, it won't just be a garden, right? The Bible says it's going to be a city, and it's, it's amazing when you read Revelation, but they're in paradise. Everything is amazing. They're in communion with God. They have all this fruit they can eat of. And what does Satan make? Well, he doesn't make it, but he tempts and he distorts, and he's getting Eve to say, I'm not going to look at the blessings. I'm going to look at that one thing God said I can't have. 
And don't we do that? God has blessed us with so much, our salvation, right, loved ones, and blessing after blessing. But what happens as we doubt God's goodness, as we have desires? We just start looking at, why can't I have that? It's a distortion. Why can't I have that one thing that I think is so important? Why can't I have that? And it happens again and again and again and again. Whenever life is good, why can't I have that? And it's, God, it's just, it's, our, our focus is shifted. There's a distortion. And I keep going to that thing. And there has to be something that we have to remember, though. God blesses us with what he gives us, but God also blesses us with what he takes away, right? He blesses us with many things that he gives, but maybe something's an idol, maybe something's bad for me and I don't even realize it. We don't understand. However, God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows what we need better than we know, obviously, but we think we're God, so we think we know everything, and oftentimes, God does things not the way I expect him to do, so I get upset. I get angry. I say, God, that's not fair. But God blesses us, and he blesses us with things he gives and things he takes away. And that's called faith, trusting in that. But what happened in the, in, in, in the temptation? There was doubt. That's why our focus gets shifted. But the distortion continues where not only do I only look at the things that I think I need and God won't give it to me, then, again, we are distortion the facts because then we start questioning, is God even for me? Because what Satan does in this passage, he's really saying to Adam and Eve, God said you can't eat of that fruit because he knows you're going to be just like him. He's gonna, you're going to know a bunch of things. You're not going to die. He lied to you. He's making God look insecure. Right? He's making God look like somebody who's selfish, who's all about God. I don't care about my creatures. And so he's saying to Adam and Eve, that's the God you want to worship? That's the God you want to obey? It's complete distortion. He's saying, God's not good. He's selfish. God's not good. He's insecure. You don't want to listen to him. You want to be like him. You want to be at the same level as him. Let's level that playing field. And there again is that distortion. And so for us as Christians, as we look to the cross, as you see who God is and that love, that he has for us, his people. As we look towards heaven, the home he has prepared, as he look at his blessings for us today and the Holy Spirit in our lives, we look at God and we know who he is. We know his goodness. We know his faithfulness. We know that he wants to bless us with everything, that he's working for the good of those who love him. And then we fight that distortion and say, Satan, no way. God is good all the time, as we say over and over when we're kids, because it is true. So we see the temptation, we see the distortion, but then we see the guilt and shame. If you look at verse 7, and we see the result. The eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they stood fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, 
in the passage, so obviously, here's what we know. They were always naked. Actually, if you look at chapter 2, verse 25, the passage ends by saying, and the man and his wife were both naked, and then he says, and were not ashamed. But now in verse 7, after sin, their eyes are open, and they realize that they're naked. And every scholar will pretty much say this, you look at verse 25, you look at verse 7, I mean, it's clear, not only are they naked, they are ashamed. Right? There's shame because of the sin. There's obviously guilt, but there is also real shame. And at that moment, what happens is the man and the woman, they sew fig leaves together because they don't want to be ashamed, right? Because they feel shame, they need to cover it up. They need to cover their sin. Now, I, as I was studying this passage, there was a couple of quotes that I wanted to share real quick, and, and I think it's helpful to think about shame and guilt, it's a little different, right? Um, one author writes, shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Another quote that I read that was helpful for me is, guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is feeling bad about what you are. Right? So there's a nuance there. I think it's actually helpful, right? When I feel guilty, I feel guilty because I've done something wrong. I have sinned, so I, I feel guilty about the act. When I'm ashamed, I feel bad about who I am. Right? It goes beyond the guilt. They come together, obviously, but it goes beyond the guilt. And with Adam and Eve, and we're going to see it in the later passage. We're not really going to go into it, but not only do they feel guilty about sinning against God, they feel ashamed about who they are. So what do they do? They sow fig leaves, and they try to cover themselves up. And this, again, is what we do. When we sin, we know there's something wrong with us. I think if we're honest, all of us sometimes know, we feel, there's something wrong with me. I don't like, not just what I've done, I don't like who I am. And so what happens when I feel that shame? I don't know what to do with it. So just like Adam and Eve get fig leaves and try to cover themselves up, we try to cover ourselves up. So what do we do? We blame shift. Right? Adam and Eve does, does that. When God says, why'd you sin? What does Adam do? First thing he says, it's her fault. I was listening to a counselor once in a lecture, and he said whenever he does marriage counseling, he said he asked the question, what's wrong with your marriage? He said almost always. He says the answer is him, her, right? This point, that's how it usually starts. They just point at one another. Adam says, God, the reason I sinned is because of her. It's because of the woman that you gave me. And you know, it's interesting if you look at um, the passage because not only does he blame Eve, 
he blames God. Right? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He's blaming Eve and he's blaming God. And then what does Eve do? She blames a serpent, obviously. And we do the same thing. When we feel ashamed to cover it up, we start blaming other people. We blame God. We blame other people. His fault, her fault. Try to shift that blame. What else do we do? We compare. I don't want to feel so bad about myself. So I start saying, oh, but, but they're worse than me. They messed up even more than I did. Do you see what he did? Do you see what she did? Or we start belittling other people, right? So I could feel better about myself and I put them down so I could go up. Well, what else do we do? We hide. Adam and Eve hide. And God comes to them and says, you know, where are you? They hide away from God and we hide to cover ourselves up. When we feel ashamed, we hide from God. We hide from community. How often have I seen that when someone is struggling, they feel ashamed, they don't come to church anymore. They don't want to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't want anybody to call them. Why? Because they're hiding and they feel that sense of shame. And we've all done it. Sometimes what do we do? We medicate. We want to get drunk. We want to get high, whether it's with a substance or maybe I just want to just watch Netflix all day and just forget about it. I want to just have a lot of fun. I need to medicate. I don't want to think about it. Or maybe we just study really hard if I'm a student. Or I work really hard. I keep myself really busy. Or I serve a lot in ministry, in church, in community. Why? Because I'm trying to cover my shame. But God, in this passage, he calls. Right? He calls out to Adam and Eve. And he says, where are you? He says it because he loves them. And all we have to say when we feel ashamed is to confess, to say, God, I'm right here. I'm naked. That I need you to cover me. Because the question is, do you sometimes or oftentimes, do you feel shame? I do. And at those moments, God comes calling to us just like he's calling to Adam and Eve. Instead of hiding, instead of blame shifting, I say, Lord, here I am. And in verse 21 of this passage, we see something pretty incredible. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve, no, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You know, when I was a kid, I read that. I just kind of went right by it. It didn't mean anything to me. And as I got older, I realized how powerful that was. Because if you think about creation to that point, there hasn't been any killing. As far as I can read in, the, in Genesis, to that point, no animal has been killed. And for the first time in history, there are animals that are killed and skinned so that God can clothe and cover his creatures, Adam and Eve, his sinful creatures. Now, there are consequences to their sin. Right? They get kicked out of the, Adam, 
they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They do lose communion. They die a spiritual death, and obviously eventually they die a physical death. And there's many consequences, obviously, for sin, and we know all that. But here's what we also, we see grace in this passage because God doesn't say you will be eternally lost, forget you forever. He actually kills animals and chooses to cover his people that he loves. And obviously it's a picture of Christ who at the cross is killed for the sins of his people. And then we are covered with his robes of righteousness. The reason that I can be forgiven, the reason that God loves a sinner like you and me is because Christ died the death we deserve. It was like he was skinned alive and he, we're clothed with his righteousness. And because of that, we have to feel no shame because we know in the Father's eyes that in Christ I am a precious child of God who will be forever loved. And when I know that, I don't want to sin. I don't doubt his goodness or his love. I am thankful for him. And I say, Lord, I look to you. I look at how good you are and your blessings. And I want to live my life without shame, thankful, praising you, living for your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your faithfulness, for you are so good. We see this passage and we see how sinful, how flawed we are. But we also see your love, your faithfulness, and your goodness. And Father, we pray that as we know more of you, that we would truly respond with worship, with praise, with obedience unto you. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.